Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. As the choir comes down, we'll uh, grab our Bibles and open to the book of Colossians chapter 1. You'll find that on page 1353 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start a new series this morning called Triad. A triad is uh, something that is divided into three parts and put together. Those three things would create a whole. And so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to talk about what I believe to be the three uh, primary necessities in the life of a Christian in order to find yourself fully satisfied in God. Think of it this way. Think about how confusing uh, things seem to be even if you ask so-called experts a question. Like, for example, if I were to gather up uh, 25 doctors, 25 medical specialists in, in uh, the area of uh, whatever area you want to choose, and I said, now what are the things that I need to do as an individual to be healthy? I'm going to get 25 different combinations of things. That there would be disagreements or there would just be different priorities. And, uh, and yet they would all have studied the same human physiology, but they would all have different opinions about what is the thing that would make us most healthy or what's the Im most important thing for us to do. Well, when you think about Christianity, there's a lot of opinions out there and a lot of ideas out there. But here's what I know. I know that a lot of people are not living their lives uh, fully satisfied in their relationship with God. And I think that one of the reasons for that is, is that we get a little bit overcomplicated sometimes. We, we make something that's intended to be simple far too uh, cumbersome, and we get jumbled up in things, and we find ourselves uh, just sort of floundering in our relationship and our walk with God. And so we're going to, I believe, these are the three components of a life that will lead you to full satisfaction in your relationship with God. And uh, today we're going to talk about life with Jesus. I think the first step in this triad process is a life with Jesus. So let me pray and then we'll study together from Colossians chapter 1. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe it to be perfect and errant from you, intended for us. God, we are grateful to be able to have it in our possession, Lord, to be able to freely stand and Read it and proclaim it, Lord. We thank you for the glory that is found in your word. And God, the, the mighty power and authority to transform us that is within this word. And God, we pray today that we would humble ourselves before it, Lord. That you would work greatly in us and through it, Father. I pray that you would anoint my lips and speak through me. And Father God, that we as your people would have ears to hear and hearts that would receive it. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I was reading a book recently about worship. It's one of my favorite uh, topics to study. And the author uh, told the following story. He said that uh, in the leader's final hours, uh, he was almost completely alone. Most who pledged their allegiance to him by now had deserted him in his final hours when he needed them the most. The leader found himself scorned by the world except for this one disciple. Only this one stayed close to the leader. His heart had been melted by the relationship that he has with his leader. This one and only disciple stayed fully committed to the agenda of his leader and devoted everything in his life to accomplishing it. This disciple wrote in his journal about his leader... He said that when we first met, great joy. He greets me like an old friend, and he looks after me. Oh, how I love him. How small I seem compared to him. Now, who is this disciple? And who is this leader that he follows? The disciple's name is uh, it's a man by the name of Joseph Goebel. And he was the disciple of a man named Adolf Hitler. And Joseph Goebel devoted his life to following everything that Hitler did. He was his right-hand man. 
And as the war was coming to a close, uh, Hitler had deemed uh, Joseph to be his uh, heir apparent to his authority and power, to the reign of whatever would remain. And then uh, in a deep, dark basement, Hitler and his wife committed suicide. The very next day, Joseph Goebel and his wife, after killing their six children, committed suicide. Now what I want you to see is that what we resemble in our lives is going to be linked to what we revere. That when you revere something, your life is going to begin to resemble it. And that here is a man who revered someone who was so evil and so heinous and committed such atrocities against humanity, and yet he revered him, and his life mimicked him all the way to death. Some of you, uh, if you grew up in the 80s, you know the comedian Chris Farley. You know that uh, he made many movies, was very famous for his wild antics uh, on television as well as on the big screen. And Chris Farley always credited his uh, comedy to the influence of a man named John Belushi. He said of John Belushi, he said, I wanted to be just like Belushi in every single way. John Belushi, if you remember, got his start in a comedy troupe called Second City. Chris Farley got his start in the same comedy troupe. Belushi moved from there to Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live, which is exactly what Chris Farley did. He moved to Saturday Night Live. And then Belushi began making movies. And Chris Farley began making movies. Belushi was known for his partying lifestyle and all of his wild escapades. And that's what Chris Farley was known for. John Belushi tragically died of a drug overdose at age 33 after a night of wild partying. Chris Farley, some years later, died of a drug overdose at age 33. There is great power in what you revere. And life has this way. There, there's something about human nature that creates in us this uh, mirroring ability. When we start revering something, when we think about something, when we focus on something, that thing begins to play out in our lives. We begin to look like that person or that thing. We begin to talk like them and think like them and do things like they would do. Because no matter what, we're going to resemble what we revere. And so you would think that if that's true, then a life with Jesus would cause us to look like Jesus. That people who would claim the name of Christ, consider themselves Christians, would, in an overwhelming majority of times, look like the one that they follow. As I thought about this, I thought, surely Chris Farley didn't study books on a regular basis about the life of John Belushi. I mean, he, wasn't, he didn't uh, worship John Belushi. He just idolized him. Joseph Goebel, he served side by side. He just mimicked the things that he saw. And then I thought about us, and I thought, how many Christians are in church week after week after week, and maybe read their Bibles on a regular basis. And yet, astonishingly, their lives don't look a lot like Christ. I mean, shouldn't our children grow up with us as their example? Shouldn't their lives just look like Jesus as we look like Jesus? Jesus showed up to a very, very religious culture. He entered a world that was so stooped in religion, that was so buried in the uh, just bureaucracy of man-centered religion. But what did he do when he got here? He didn't do what people would expect him to do. He didn't show up and go to church he didn't show up and hang out with all the religious people. In fact, he did the very opposite. He spent all of his time connecting with the people that were least like him. 
Well, when you sit down and open your Bible and read the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do you ever think about what you're reading and look at the life of Jesus and then say, is this the way I live? Is this the way my life goes? Or do we just sort of read that but then put it in a compartment and then live our lives the way we've always lived them and somehow the two just don't seem to connect together? What was going on with the religion that Jesus walked into? They certainly didn't have a devotion problem. Oh, they, were, they had devotion down pat. They had, they had mastered devotion. They were as faithful as faithful could possibly be. They were as externally devoted as devotion has ever seen in the history of the world. And yet, on the outside, they had every appearance of following God. But Jesus immediately began to expose that on the inside, they couldn't have been further from following the God whose name they claimed. That really, their lives were about exalting themselves. That if you look at the religious culture Jesus came into and you say, if in fact life mimics what we revere, then what were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what did they revere? They obviously revered themselves because everything about the way they manipulated and utilized religion was to was to make their lives better, to further separate them from the commoners and to put them above everyone else. They used religion to elevate themselves. They used religion as a way to live a privileged life at the expense of others. And so all these years later, you could walk into so many churches today you could talk to so many church people, and you know what you'd find? Is that they don't say this, but really what's going on is that there's this sense that church is for church people. You know what I'm talking about? Don't act like you don't. Church is for church people. And if church is for church people, then who's Jesus for? Jesus must be for church people. And let me tell you something, that's not what the Gospels say. Now, how does this happen? How is it that Jesus gravitated to the people that were least like him, and the people who were least like him loved him? They loved him. They didn't feel uncomfortable around him. They weren't, they weren't rejected by him. He wasn't rejected by them. If you study church history, what you find is a long, humiliating line of culture after culture, generation after generation, battling this problem. Some do worse than others. But it's this ever-present problem of people who supposedly are doing life with Jesus, but they don't look like Jesus. What happens when a person who is absolutely nothing like Jesus, what happens when that person starts following Jesus? There's a radical transformation. The Bible is literally filled with story after story after story of individuals who were nothing like Jesus, met Jesus, began following Jesus, and were radically transformed, and whose lives looked like Jesus. That no one can be perfectly like Jesus, but they looked like Jesus. They seemed to do things the way Jesus would do them. To use a worn-out cliche, they it would appear, would look at a situation and say, well, what would Jesus do? And then they would do that thing. The book of Colossians is written by just such a man. I don't think anybody was as much unlike Jesus when they met him as Paul. 
I mean, here's Paul murdering people for following Jesus. He's literally breathing murderous thoughts out of his mouth and mind. His heart is filled with malice towards those who would follow Jesus. He is as devout in religion as a person could ever be. He meets Jesus and his life is, to say it was turned upside down is, is, is a, a, just a, a failure of my vocabulary to express the radical transformation that occurred in the Apostle Paul's life. Would you agree? And so a mere 30 years after Jesus' life, he writes the book of Colossians. And he says things that are not unlike the other things that are said, even by him and other letters and epistles in the New Testament, but he says things that should cause us to think to ourselves, why is he saying this? Why would Paul write a letter to Christians in the church of Colossae and say the words that I'm about to read from Colossians chapter 1 a mere 30 years after the Lord Jesus had completed his earthly ministry. So there's, there's a contingency of people who would hear these words who were alive, who, who saw Jesus, who knew Jesus. There were people around. And yet he says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is in the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now that's an amazing passage of Scripture. And, and 99% of the time when you read a passage of Scripture like that, your response would be, well, amen. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's true. I agree. But here's my question. Why would the Bible say that 30 years after Jesus lived to a group of Christians? Wouldn't they know that to be true? Why is Paul reminding people who Jesus is? Because even 30 years after Jesus, people had already begun to look like something other than Jesus. And they need to be reminded. And that's why this is in the canon of Scripture. And that's why we have this before us, to be able to read it and study and let it minister to our hearts. Because we don't want to be those kind of people. We want to ask ourselves a question this morning. Am I living with Jesus? Am I? Are you living with Jesus? Does your life look like a life of a person who would live with Jesus according to the Jesus of Scripture? Let's look at this text. Colossians 1, let's take it apart. Verse 15. Paul begins by saying he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now understand something. Paul is showing us the difference. He's delineating the difference between us and God. That we are created in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. And there, those two things are vastly different. The book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1 of Jesus that he is who is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. Literally, that means the exact imprint of the nature of God is encapsulated in Jesus Christ. But you see, and if it was merely an image, images fall short of the original. And so Paul is making sure that we know that we are created in the image, but Jesus is God. He is the exact representation. He is that. And there's a difference. And so, for example, this is why from the beginning, God would warn us about worshiping images of things. In Exodus chapter 20, in the Ten Commandments, the Lord says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself carved images. Don't make any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath. You see, you, we're not to make images of God because an image will fall short. We can't create any image of God that would, would equate 
to the reality of who Jesus is. That's why you shouldn't do that. If it was possible for us to do that, then the Bible would command us all to do that. But we shouldn't do that. It's impossible. Think about images. When I think about man trying to make an image of God, I think about the artistic genius that is my children. They are phenomenal. So I brought a picture that my daughter made. Now, if you can see at the top, it says, To Dad, from Kayla. Now, that is a picture of her father driving his truck. Now, let's just behold the glory of that image. It looks like, uh, I don't know what's going on with my hair, but it's in the form of a crown. But she painted it yellow for my blonde hair. Now, no one, if, if I put this picture in the newspaper, no one would open the newspaper and say, oh, look, there's Tony. The only way that you would ever know that that was me is if it was in the right context. If you came to my house and that was on my refrigerator, you would probably be able to put it together. But outside of that context, you would never look at that and think that was me because it pales in comparison to the reality of who her dad really is. It's just her human endeavor to express an image, however short it may fall, of of who her dad is. Right? Well, this is the same thing that the Bible describes is what happens when we try to make an image of God. Think about what the psalmist says in Psalm 115 about idols that we make. The, the Bible says, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. But their idols, speaking of the pagans, are silver and gold. They're the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they cannot handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. In other words, what the Bible says is that a person who would make an idol and worship an idol in relation to God would be the same thing as a little girl who would draw a picture of her dad with crayons and then look to that picture for guidance and direction and provision and protection throughout the course of her life. That that would be utterly insane. It would be ridiculous. It couldn't possibly yield any wanted benefit. That's what idolatry is. It's that ridiculous. God says any image that you try to make of me is going to fall so miserably short that it's laughable and that you will make yourself like the image. Now listen to what I'm saying. The Bible says that whatever you worship, you're going to be like. The Bible says that the reason that Chris Farley was the way he was was because of his idolatry. That the reason Joseph Goebel was the way he was was because of his idolatry. Which must mean that the reason that the church has struggled the way it does is because of its idolatry. That we're a representation of what we worship. Whatever, what or who we worship is going to determine what our lives look like. You see, an image can't express, encapsulate how holy God is. An idol, an image of God, no matter how, how hard you worked at it, no matter how sincerely you desired to create it for his glory and honor, it cannot possess the grace that God's filled with. It, it, is, it can't even begin to scratch the surface of his righteousness or his providence or his sovereignty. In other words, it's an utter and complete waste of time. The only way to worship Jesus is to worship him directly. There's no sight. Excuse me, sidetrack. There's no back door way in. There's no other way you can worship Jesus other than to come to the feet of who he actually and truly is as expressed in the word of God. And so Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. He goes on to say the firstborn over all creation. Yes, John 14 
The Bible said, Jesus said of himself, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He's saying, listen, you're not seeing an image of God. You're seeing God. When you see Jesus, you see God. And Jesus was very out front and outspoken about that. In John chapter 1, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we know that he wasn't created like we were created because he's always been. He's the word. He's always been there. No one fashioned him to look like God. He's always been. He looks like God because that's who he is. And so John 1 goes on to say in verse 14, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus comes as the express perfect representation of God to a world filled with hopeless, worthless, man-centered religion where people are disguising the worship of God as really the worship of themselves. And he comes into that world and he comes in full of grace and truth. Now, those are two things that religion really doesn't want any part of. You see, they only want, they don't want grace and they only want partial truth. They only want the part of the truth that works in their favor, but they don't want all the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth because that's going to cause them problems. So Jesus shows up and the outcasts and the rejects felt comfortable around him. They flocked to him. He heals the broken. He brings hope to the forgotten. He's so filled with grace that the big complaint levied against him by the religious leaders was that he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. The problem that they had with Jesus, think about that. Their problem with Jesus was that he was a friend to sinners and tax collectors. So they determined that based on their God that they had manufactured in their own mind, this person couldn't be God because God would never befriend sinners and tax collectors. You see, why did he do that? Because he was full. He was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace. He was, he was so full of grace that people who thought they could never be around anyone religious loved being around him. But he was also full of truth. You see, contrary to what the Pharisees thought, he didn't lower the standard of God's law. In fact, he raised the bar by going after men's hearts. He didn't come to bring behavior modification. He came to bring heart transformation. Think about what grace and truth truth does he came filled with enough grace to deal with the truth of our sin you see if there's no grace how are you how are you going to enter into a conversation how are you going to be able to look honestly into the reality of your heart and the depravity of 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 your soul and the things that you have done and continue to do No one's going to look at that if there's no grace. You're going to be obliterated in an instant. But see, Jesus brings enough grace that we can have a truthful conversation about who we are and where we're going. The full expression of a Savior full of grace and truth can be seen nowhere clearer than the cross. You see, when you look at the cross... Two things are undeniable. One is that our sin is so bad that God had to send his son to die. That's the truth. The truth is not what you think about yourself. The truth is not how you feel about yourself. The truth is not about what you've manufactured about yourself. The truth is your sin is so bad that God's son had to be slaughtered for your sin. That's the truth. But at the same time, the cross also tells us that God loves you so much that he slaughtered his son for your sin. So you see, in the cross, 
We see grace and truth, the truth of who we are, but also the grace of God in relation to who we really are. You see, that ought to... That should make a room full of people who devote their lives to being like him really, really excited. It ought to make singing songs about a God like that really, really amazing. It ought to make opportunities in your life to do things as he would have done them. Very, very valuable. Paul says he's the firstborn over all creation. Then in verse 16, look at what he says. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. So if you think about this for a moment, Jesus created all things. All things. That means that Jesus created Mary through whose womb he would enter the world. Jesus created the trees, including the two that made up the cross that he hung from, that he never encountered, saw, or referred to anything in his entire earthly ministry that he wasn't responsible fully for creating. I mean, think about that. Look at the scope of his, cre- of his creation. Paul goes on to say, he, in his creation, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now, wait a minute. What is Paul saying here? That Jesus created all things, including the supernatural things, even the supernatural evil things? Yes, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age. Now, is this helpful information? I mean, does that encourage you somehow this morning to think about the fact that everything that is was created by Jesus, that he reigns and rules over those things, and even the things that cause you the most problems, even the things that are the greatest adversary to the things that you desire to be in your life, how is it helpful that Jesus created those things? Well, it shows us two things. Number one, it should teach you the valuable lesson that even things created by God can become evil. So if angels can become demons, what can people become? The second thing it shows us is that as creator... Jesus is superior to and has authority over everything, including them. You see, look at the second half of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. See, Paul's giving us explanation here. Well, what do you mean, Paul? He's explaining that as creator, he created everything with a purpose. And regardless of what those things do, regardless of whether they choose to live for righteousness or whether they choose to live for evil, they're all created for a purpose, and the purpose exists for his glory. To which you say, now wait a minute, what are you saying? Are you saying that, that the powers and principalities exist for his glory? That's exactly what I'm saying. Just read the book of Colossians. You'll come to the very next chapter and you'll read these words in verse 13. Paul says, And you, being dead in your trespasses, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, and then what happened? He disarmed the principalities and the powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them all. You see that for his glory, that at the cross, he made a public spectacle of all the powers and the principalities. He showed his dominance over them. He sealed their fate. We need to be reminded of this? Well, we know this, don't we? 
We, wouldn't, we don't need to be reminded of this. Certainly. And, and even if we do, certainly people who live just a couple decades after Jesus will, I mean, seeing all that he did, knowing everything that who he was, they wouldn't need to know this. So the book of Philippians, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. And everyone. That every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see that ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It will either bow thankfully or it will bow fearfully. But it will bow because he is the authority over everything. He is the creator and the sustainer of everything. Look at verse 17. He is before all things and in him all things consist. I mean, did you hear when Brother Kevin prayed for the offering this morning? He prayed right out of this text. And he thanked God for holding everything together. That's exactly what Paul is telling us, that he holds it all together, that it's, it's the fact that the earth is spinning on its right axis at the exact distance away from the sun so that we don't freeze to death or burn up in an instant is because Jesus is orchestrating all those events right now for that to happen. At the same time, he's overseeing your lungs breathing in and out and your organs functioning the way that he created them. That he is, his authority is, has no limits in its span. So if that's true, it seems almost a little strange that Paul would then say what he says in the very next verse. He's the head of the body, the church. Well, duh. I mean, I'm thinking, is that necessary, that statement? Well, of course he is. If everything you've said about him is true up until now, you don't need to say that. Jesus said of himself, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, Jesus isn't, he's not interested in building your church or my church or anybody else's church. He's only interested in building his church. And his church is a church that he's the head of. I was talking on the phone this week having a conversation that I have on a very regular basis and I was talking with a family that had uh, moved from here and relocated and they were uh, just needed some encouragement and were bemoaning the reality of trying to find a new church in a new place and how difficult that is. And I always try to tell them that you can't go somewhere else and try to find the place you left. You have to go somewhere else and find the place that God sent you to. Don't walk in looking for another Michael Memorial because you're not going to find another Michael Memorial. But God's got a place there, I believe, and pray that he does. And so we're talking about that. And I said to them, don't, don't walk out of a church and make the same mistake that so many people make. And they ask, how did I like that church? That is such a bad question. Who cares how you like the church? The question is, does Jesus like the church? I mean, if you're a Christian and you visit a church, the only thing you ought to be concerned about is what does Jesus think about this church? Is he the head of this church? Is this his church? That's what you want to know. Where did you find the scripture that says, go and find the church that you like? It's not in there. But what happens is we forget. Not just a mere 30 years after Jesus lived. We forget that that's why Colossians has to keep ringing in our ears for thousands of years later. We still need to hear it just as much today as they need to hear it then. And it will be the same way in every generation that we drift away from what we once knew to be true. And we start thinking, wait a minute, it's just about us. And before we know it, we don't look anything like the one we say we're following. You know, the question's not, do I like the preacher? Do I like the music or anything else? The question is, does Jesus like the church? 
Is this his church? Is he the head of this church? How do you know if Jesus is the head of a church? Now put your seatbelt on. It's about to get ugly. How do you know? I think that's an important question. I think here's the first thing I would say. Jesus likes a church where sinners and tax collectors are welcome. I guarantee you that. If a sinner and a tax collector aren't welcome, Jesus ain't there. Because that's how it was when he was here. That's who he showed us he is. And so I wouldn't give you two cents for anywhere where they're not welcome. Or is it more often than not where everything in a church is geared around making religious people comfortable? Do you think that's what Jesus would do? Do you think that's where Jesus would worship? The church that Jesus is the head of is going to look like him. See, the Bible says that whatever you worship, you look like. Now, you can extrapolate that out any way you want to, but that's what the Bible says. So if you go into a church and they don't look like Jesus... They're worshiping somebody else. He may go by that name. They may have the same book. They may do the same things. But I'm just telling you that the Bible says the people will look like the things they worship. So Paul goes on and he says of Jesus who is in the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now we're getting to the heart of why Paul is saying all this. Now we're beginning to answer the question of the astonishing reality of why would the Apostle Paul write these words to a group of people who lived so soon after Jesus, who many of whom had seen him, who were followers of him, who were in a church in Colossae. Why would he write these words? Wouldn't they know this? Wouldn't every Christian know this information? Because they needed to be reminded that he is in all things to have preeminence. That this is what living with Jesus is. People who live with Jesus make him preeminent in their lives. They look like the one that they walk with. They look like the one that they worship. Whatever they revere, they resemble. Jesus is supreme over all things. Paul is simply reminding what every single Christian should already know. He's king over all things. So that in all things, because of who he is, it would only make sense that he would be preeminent in our lives. That if he is the firstborn over all creation, if he created all things and holds everything together, if all of it's been created for him, if the purpose of all of it is for his glory, if all that's true, then how could anyone ever in a million years with all the creativity you could dream up possibly come up with a scheme where somehow this would be true of God, yet he wouldn't be preeminent? In the lives of his followers. It's unthinkable. And yet it's a reality that you can see in every direction. Jesus, newsflash, is not interested in being a part of your life. He's not interested in that. In fact, you can't even receive him as part of your life. It doesn't work that way. He only comes one way. He doesn't change for you. He doesn't become a little man-made idol for whoever is desiring for him to come into their life. He only comes as who he is, the preeminent one over all things. That's the only way he comes, which in our vernacular would be as Lord. 
That's how he comes. Lord of everything. You see, let's go back to the Pharisees for a second. What was going on with them? Here's these devoted people, these ultra-religious people. I mean, they had knowledge upon knowledge. Upon, I mean, they, they would, let's face it, no one in this room can even compares with their level of devotion and understanding and knowledge and memorization. And yet, they didn't look anything like, because understand, who is Jesus the exact representation of? The God that they had been following all their lives. And so when that God shows up in the flesh, he was completely the opposite of the way they were. Which at the very least this morning ought to make you say, oh goodness, that's possible? Oh yes, that's possible. It's highly possible for an individual to devote their life to worshiping someone, to meet him face to face and to realize they had the wrong person the whole time. Jesus even said to those very people, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. To which in their astonishment, they begin levying and begging and pleading and listing out all of the things they did to prove their devotion. And yet he said, I never knew you. But what was the central... Because we got to just nail this down so we can go on to small group today. What is the central problem with the Pharisees? Let's just boil it down. I mean, what is, the, what is the big error that they're making? What was going on in their spiritual life did not carry over into any of the other areas of their life. See, they were in a temple building. They were singing temple chants. They were reciting psalms. They were praying prayers that were unbelievably long and unbelievably just skillfully crafted and put together. But then they would walk out of that building and they would have no regard for the poor. They would take advantage of people who were downtrodden. They would overlook the needs of those around them. They would. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that the reason that Jesus had nothing to do with them is because all of their religion centered around this quadrant of their life and it didn't bleed over into all the other areas of their life, which meant that he was not their Lord. You see, they were fully welcoming, as so many people who claim the name of Christ are today, for Jesus to be Lord over their spiritual life. But at work, there's somebody else. At school, there's somebody else. In your neighborhood, you're somebody else. At home, in your family, you're somebody else. You see, he's not your Lord unless he's Lord over all family, school, work. Whatever it is that you do, he's Lord. He's preeminent in all things. Paul's saying you need to be reminded lest you forget and begin to drift away and start looking like the ones that Jesus didn't have anything to do with. It's a warning for you and me. You see, I could have came in here this morning and I could have said, let's just have a happy little talk about are we walking with Jesus. But that wouldn't have done us any good. You know why? Because everybody just lied to themselves and say, well, I know I am. I'm good. I'm just trying to get us to be honest. Do you look like Jesus? Are sinners and tax collectors welcome in your home? Are you investing in people who don't know Jesus? When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When was the last time you brought a, a, a non-church person to church with you? In other words, I want you to just hear what I'm saying. If you come to church every time the doors are open, you have your Bible, you've read your Bible, you pay your tithe, you 
follow all. You go to Sunday school. You're here on Sunday night. You're here on Wednesday night. You do everything that anyone asks you to do in the temple. You go out the doors. And you don't have any consideration for the sinners and the tax collectors out there. Then whose life do you look like? And we wonder why there's this huge lack of satisfaction in our relationship with God. That you can be a Christian and veer so far off course that you don't even look like any, anything like the one that you profess to follow. What did he invest all of his time doing? What do you invest all of your time doing? Isn't it interesting that we would go through these phases in our life where we would say things to ourselves like, well, you know, when things calm down, I'm going to get serious about following God. You know, when I get through this little chapter of my life, I'm going to really buckle down and focus in on the Lord. You know, I got to get some things together. I got to straighten myself out and, and get my act together. And then, I mean, it just blows my mind that somehow, I mean, where did the lost world get the idea that you've got to straighten yourself up to come to church? We told them that. Christians created a culture where church is a place for church people and Jesus is for church people. And so the people that aren't church people think I can't go to church unless I look like a church person. Which if you open your Bible this week and read one of the Gospels, what you're going to find is that doesn't look anything like Jesus. But it looks a whole lot like another group in the Bible. You see... We're going to resemble what we revere. So what happened? What are we revering? The same things as the Pharisees. Ourselves. You see, if I revere myself, what I'm going to do is come up with this great system where I can give an hour or two or even three a week to this spiritual discipline and then the rest of the week I can do whatever I want to do and I can feel okay about myself. That sounds exactly like the Pharisees. It sounds exactly like the people Jesus had absolutely no interest in whatsoever. In fact... Jesus held them accountable for the disaster of society that he came into. He said that the reason why they were so anti-religion and so separated and disenchanted with things about God was because of the way that they were behaving. And thousands of years later, nothing's changed. I want you to see the best news in the whole entire world. The best news that a Christian can ever be reminded of is that wherever Jesus is, he's the king. He's the king. Because I'm telling you right now, Wherever Jesus is not operating as the king in your life is zapping all the joy out of your life. It's sucking all the strength out of you. It's depleting all of your resources. It's grinding you up into a pulp. That's why you drag into church after a week in the world like you've been run through a meat grinder. Try 
letting Jesus be the king. Try making him preeminent in all things. In other words, he's the king. You are not the one who has to be responsible for orchestrating all the events in your life or trying to navigate or manipulate or negotiate. You just simply follow him. That's the beauty of Christianity. That's why all the sinners and the tax collectors were flooding to him. Because the message of the gospel was like, what? You mean to tell me that everything that I've done could be forgiven, that I could have a relationship with God even though I'm a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner, and that God is going to create an environment to where I can live with him as my king? Yes. That the pressure's off. It's not on. It's off. That you can just live in the freedom and the joy of not being your own king. We need to put a giant sign on the top of our bathroom mirror that reminds us that there's no one that you've ever met who could ever make a bigger mess of your life than you. So stop trying to be the king. Joy in Jesus comes from walking with him, living with him. And that means with him, who he is. Not who you make him up to be, but who the Bible says he is. You know, how many times do we, we say these crazy things to God? As if he's sort of bound by our will or our desires or our thoughts or our presuppositions you know when you live with Jesus when you walk with Jesus when you follow Jesus it doesn't mean you're, you're going to look like him that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect you're not going to be perfect you're never going to be perfect until you're with him face to face in eternity so long as you're on this earth you're not going to be perfect but your life is going to reflect the one that you follow it means that to put it in a the simplest way I know how. It's really satisfaction is connected to desire. That the people that I have the privilege of doing life with that are most satisfied in God are people who desire most what God desires. Now they still desire other things. And they even still desire some things that they don't want to desire and they're trying to not desire. But listen closely, they desire most what God desires. And when, when your preeminent desire is what He desires, when that desire trumps your other desires, then your life is going to remarkably begin to reflect Jesus. Let me give you an example of that. I asked my wife last night, I said, Lisa, I know this is going to be a, an open-ended question. Now you can come at me from any way, so be gentle. I said, but you knew me. You were married to me before I knew Jesus. And I said, so what is something that I do today that I only do because Jesus desires for me to do it, that apart from him I would never do that? And she smiled, and she said, do you remember when you graduated from college? And I said, yeah, I mean, I was there. <laughs> and we were just dating when I was in college. And when I graduated from college, you know, Lisa had gotten to know me pretty good, but apparently, you know, not fully. So I graduated from college, so she decided she was going to put together a 
uh, party and celebrate my graduation. And so she called all my friends and invited all my friends and, you know, decorated this venue and got everything ready for this surprise graduation party for Tony. But you see, she knew that I was a shy person. She knew that I would get socially anxious. She knew that I didn't like being the center of attention. I certainly didn't like people focusing at me or looking at me or anything like that. But she felt like that, you know, I wasn't completely phobic and that this would, would be fine. And so she uh, comes and, and picks me up and, you know, she's, I don't even have a clue what's going on. And so she, you know, I think we're going to eat dinner. And so we get to this restaurant and I walk in the front door and there's this giant banner hanging across the front door and there's all these people in there and they all yell, surprise! And I turned around and left. I walked out the door, got in my car. She's like, what's wrong with you? Don't you see all those people in there? I said, I don't do that. That's not who I am. I don't like people looking at me. I don't like to be, I, I don't like that. I'm just not that way. She said, yeah, preacher man. So what happened? Do I like getting up here in front of all these faces every week? No. Is all my anxiety gone? No. Am I just transformed into this person who just now my great joy is to devote my life to public speaking? No. I would way rather be sitting on the back row back there by Kelly and Jacko. Maybe over in the corner by Patrick. Maybe ease over this way towards the wall. Maybe that's where I'd rather be. And when I first started coming to church, that's where I was. What I want you to see is that my displeasure for standing in front of people and being the center of attention is overwhelmed by my desire to be pleasing to God. What happens when you just desire what God desires more than your other desires, you begin to do things that make you look like the one that you follow. But if you allow your desires to supersede the desire of the one whom you claim to serve, you're going to look like people who serve themselves. And so I ask you this morning, Are you living with Jesus? Can you go home today and open your Bible and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and see glimpses, shadows, reflections of the one whom you're reading about? in your very own life? Do you love sinners and tax collectors? Are you concerned about the downtrodden and the hurting? Or do you want things the way you like them? Are you about your preferences? Are you in a church right now that Jesus is the head of? 
I ask myself that question all the time. I don't want to ever be a church that he's not the head of. But I know it's an ever-present danger if we're not careful. Satisfaction in your relationship with God begins with simply living your life with Him. You wake up tomorrow to whatever it is that's on your plate to do. And you don't leave Him here. You take Him with you. And you do there. You work there. You serve there. You speak there. You do everything you do the way He would do it if He were there. And you will find yourself gloriously beginning to find this great joy and satisfaction in your relationship with God. For he is full of grace and truth. Let's stand and bow our heads.